This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. For our guests, we are in a series called Simplify, and uh, this is our eighth week in the series talking about our lives, how our lives get filled with clutter and busyness that eventually only serves to pull us away from our relationship with God and our ability to serve Him and be what He wants us to be with this world and in this world. So we've been spending a lot of time talking about a lot of different things. Last Sunday, for example, we talked about the importance of planning times of rest in our lives. I I had breakfast this morning with a guy who's starting vacation this week, and he said, man, he said, I need it in some kind of a bad way. He said, because there's a southern term we use for those of you not southerners, you might not understand what this means, but he said, he said, if I work too many days in a row, like a whole week and not with a day off, or I've been working, he says, I get ill. Doesn't mean he gets sick, it just means he gets mean and nasty. That's what that means. And uh, he said, right now, I'm pretty ill. He says, it's been hot, and I've been out in the heat, and I need my vacation. I said, I said you weren't in church last Sunday, were you? He goes, no, I was working. I said, you need to go and listen to the message on the podcast because we talk about times of rest. Today, I want to talk with you about the biblical theology of being content. And here's why. If I learn contentment, I will learn what it means to have enough. And if I know what it means, I learn what it means to have enough, then my life is bound to get much simpler. Now, what I did, I said I was going to go around and adjust the thermostats, and and that's exactly what I did. But I'm going to tell you what I did. I went around and I turned them all off. And I know what some of you are thinking. And but by the way, I, when I planned all this and to do all this, I did not know that God had planned for us today to be the hottest day of the year. But I thought, that's how God is. He's just really, he's really cool about that. You know, he just has all that figured out. And this is going to be the hottest Sunday of the year. And uh, we're going to turn the air off. And some of you are thinking he has lost his mind. Some of you are saying, this is America. We have a right to air conditioning. Or something like that. But bear with me, there is a purpose behind what I'm doing. Now, I count myself fortunate to have been born and raised in an era when we didn't have everything that we have now. I can remember the first family in our neighborhood to get a color TV and how we all had to go over to their house and check it out and see those shows on, in color. You know, the other, yesterday, I guess it was, last night, Nathan and his family came over in our house and we were watching the, uh, the Andy Griffith Marathon on, on uh, TV land. And, 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 uh, and, and little Hunter looks at it and he says, how come everything's white? And, and Nathan says, what do you mean it's white? He says, well, everything is either white or it's black, you know? <laughs> He didn't understand, and we explained to them that was before color TV, foreign to his mind, has no idea what that means at all, but I do. I can remember the very first time I took a ride in a car that had air conditioning. It was my Aunt Nita. She had bought a brand new, probably about 1965, 66 Chevrolet Impala. It was really a nice car, loaded. And we took a trip from Alexandria, Virginia to the mountains in Front Royal and rode and, and I sat right up front and that cold air blowing on me gave me a headache. I'll never forget it. You know, I wanted to roll the windows down. You know? And uh, first time I ever rode in a car with air conditioning and some of you are saying, 
Uh, some of the young ones are saying, oh, well, I don't know what that's all about. Every car I've ever been in has had air conditioning. There was a time. In fact, I was thinking this last week with the record heat and so many without power due to the storms, and I was, I was feeling bad for them. And then I realized, doggone, I grew up when there was no air conditioning. And we went to bed at night with the windows raised, hoping that there would be a breeze come through the window during the night. I grew up in my preschool and elementary years in, in eastern North Carolina. In fact, our house was right behind our house was a swamp. You know, so I mean, it was hot and muggy and humid. I mean, just miserable heat in the summertime. And I can remember many, many nights in the summer laying in bed, stripped down to my underwear on top of the sheet, sweating until I finally just went to sleep. Last, well, a few weeks ago, back in May, I guess it was, we had a a week here that kind of was more like a summertime week than a May week, and the temps got up in the 80s, and wouldn't you know it, that's when at home our heat pump decided it was time to give up the ghost and say it is finished. And our service tech came very quickly when we told him, hey, it's not working, and he came over and he pumped a bunch of Freon into the system, and he said, this will last you several days until we can figure out what you're going to do next, because the, the unit was 11 years old, and it was, it was time for it to go, and, and they don't last much longer here on the coast, and, and, and so he came and filled it up, and you know, it lasted about 24 hours. Man, the late the next day, it wasn't, it wasn't pumping cold air out anymore, and there we were in a warm house with no air conditioning. And when I called him up and said, look, we need a new unit. Here's what I want. How much is it going to cost? And he told me I did not balk at all at the cost. I said, get it. Just get it here and get it running now. Because we were sweating and Gail was really irritable, you know. And <laughs> we were miserable. We were discontent. And for the next five or six days, it seemed like forever, as he ordered that stuff and it came in and then they had to come in and install it. It seemed like it took so long, but it didn't. We, we made do with fans. We just found things. We went out and bought fans and we fa- pulled fans out of the, the shed and out of the attic and blew the dust all up, had fans, ceiling fans, anything that would stir up some air. But fans don't come anywhere close to air conditioning, do they? Now, don't get me wrong. Those nights that I remember spending as a boy sleeping in a house where the temperature at night, I'm sure it didn't get below 80, those were not fun as I look back on them, falling asleep just drenched. In fact, I'd say sleeping in that kind of weather is miserable. And if you've ever done so, you know what I'm talking about. But you know, we weren't discontent. And the reason we weren't discontent was because none of us had ever slept in air conditioning before. We didn't know what that was all about. Sleeping in a hot house for us was just part of of life, and we had to endure it for a season. Jot this in your notes. Being, Being miserable because of things you can't control isn't sin. That's not a sin to be miserable in heat. But being discontented is. Now, by the way, some of you have already started to notice it's starting to get a little warmer in here. By the way, if you want to find warm, come up here with me in these lights. It's about 10 degrees warmer up here than it is down there. I just just will let you know that. And now now that I've turned off the thermostats in this room on purpose, and and again, the purpose is not to save money, although I'm sure that we will, but but so that we, here's, here's what I'm doing. I want us all to feel at the same time the temptation to be discontented. All of us. Oh, man. Because, you know, some of you are going to start 
fanning yourselves and, and it's going to get gradually warmer in here and you're going to get a little bit uncomfortable. And by the way, if for legitimate health reasons, you get to the point where you have to leave or you'll die. We'd rather you leave. Okay. <laughs> Please excuse yourself and we'll understand. But most of us are not made of milk chocolate. Most of us are not going to die. We'll miss the AC and we'll start fanning ourselves. We might even find out if our neighbor's deodorant's working today. That that might be interesting. And you'll wonder if I've I've lost my mind. And some of you, remember the the funeral funeral home fans? Some of you will wish you had one of those or maybe even one of those right now, you know? Where's Tom Lee? He's right now. He's, yeah, he's, that's... Okay, Tom's saying, where's my Slurpee? But I hope the purpose of what we're doing this morning, I hope it'll help to drive home the point of today's message about simplifying our lives. And here's the point I want you to go home with. If if nothing else, I want you to get this. Ask yourself this question. Have I discovered the spiritual discipline of being content? Have I discovered the spiritual discipline of being content? We're talking today about an area of spiritual maturity that, like sacrifice, is one of those things that we wish wasn't in the Bible. But it is. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Paul writes and he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that, with food and clothing. In the Bible, in your notes, in the Bible, God commends contentment. He commends it. Paul said godliness with contentment. Let's talk about those two things. Godliness is simply an overarching attitude that says, I want to please God with my life. If I could just say, here's what godliness, I want to please God with my life. J.I. Packer says contentment is essentially a matter of accepting from God's hand what he sends because we know he is good and therefore it is good. Contentment, if that's godliness, contentment is the freedom that comes when prosperity or poverty doesn't matter. And there's the rub for us. When it really doesn't matter, rich or poor. Because if I'm godly and I have contentment, what matters is, first of all, my life is lived for God above all else. And then things are not my God if I've learned godliness and contentment. I don't worship things. And if he blesses me with prosperity, and he does bless many people with that, if he blesses me with prosperity, <coughs> excuse me, prosperity, I'll use it for his glory. But if he does not, Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. He wasn't saying they were bad because they were poor, or they were poor because they were bad. But if he does not, I'll use what I have. And we all have something. I'll use what I have for his glory. The Apostle Paul, after describing the life God had chosen for him, and that included Things like shipwreck and beatings and hunger and thirst and cold and imprisonment. And he goes through all these things and experiences that he'd had. And then here in Philippians 4, he says, here's what I've learned. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. He says, I've had everything and I've had nothing. 
I know what it is to be in need. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. What a great testimony of contentment. And before anybody says, and somebody might be thinking this right now, yeah, but that's the apostle, capital A, capital P, uh, however you spell the rest of the word. That's the apostle Paul speaking there. Let me remind you that he was just a man. Unlike, you know, no different than anybody else in this room. He was no superman, no superhuman strength of his own. God commends contentment. God says it's a good thing in the Bible. But God also commands contentment. Uh Uh-oh, commands means God expects us to put it into practice. We just celebrated last week the birth of what I believe to be the greatest nation in the face of the earth. And we believe that God has indeed, and I think he has, he has blessed America. But truthfully, let's be real honest as Americans, and I assume most of us in here are, Truthfully, America has become the most discontented nation on earth. Historian Arthur J. Schlesinger says, we are a society marked by, listen to his term, inextinguishable discontent. We can't put it out. And it affects us even in the church. Those who have been told by God, called by God to find our contentment in him, we're affected as Americans with this inextinguishable discontent. And instead of seeking contentment, we're often guilty of seeking more stuff. And we look around and we see what everybody else has. And we say, I want it too. How come I can't have that? Come on, God. Janis Joplin's song. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. Discontent. We used to call it keeping up with the Joneses. Our minds are filled with the passion for what others have by advertising and, and by this innate desire we have, this celebrity idol worship that wants the lifestyle of the rich and famous even though I'm neither. And for us, for many of us, the truth is we are overly busy in our lives and our lives become very, very complicated in this quest to get just a little bit more, as least as much as our neighbors. My son-in-law, Ramon's dad, just drove home last week a 2012 Camaro. And I saw that picture. And I can't tell you my first thoughts were, well, good for him. (laughs) It's white with black racing stripes. And I thought, dude, he's older than dirt. He's older than me. That's a young man's car. Come on, God. Actually, it's not a young man's car. It's a car for old men who want to think they're young. You know, that's, that's what it is. What's contentment? What contentment is, what contentment is not? Let me give you some comparisons. Contentment is not 
let me look up on the screen with you. Contentment is not denying feelings about unhappiness. It's not saying, I'm not unhappy. No, don't, you know. Come on, if, if, you're, if you're happy, then some of you, tell your face about it. Would you do that, you know? Wow. Let your face know that you're not unhappy. I see people, I look at them and go, ooh, life is cruel to you today. Oh, I'm okay, I'm happy. <laughs> what part of your body is expl- expressing that happiness? That's what I want to know. It's not denying feelings about unhappiness. Contentment is freedom from being controlled by those feelings. Contentment's not pretending things are right when they are not. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. How many of us, I mean, I've never had somebody when I went up to them say, hey, how are you doing today? Oh, gosh, man, this is the worst day of my life. You know, how many, 99% of people you ask that question, how are you doing today? They're going to say, I'm fine. I'm okay. Life is good. But if that's, if really you are fine all the time, would you please come and sit down and counsel me for a little while? Because that's not how my life is. My life's not always great. It's not pretending that things are right when they're not. Contentment is peace from knowing God is in control no matter what's going on in my life. That's contentment. Contentment's not complacency that defeats any attempt to make things better. Now, please hear this, because some people hear this message about contentment. They say, oh, you're saying, let's just be lazy. Let's just kind of let go and let God. That's not what that says. Contentment is not, it's not complacency that defeats any. We, We talked a few weeks ago about the biblical directive to work and to labor with our hands. And, and we are, if we can make things better, go for it. But contentment is willingness to work tirelessly toward improvement, leaving the results to God. Is there another one? Contentment's a feeling of being, of well-being. It's not a contempt, a feeling of well-being because I have life circumstances under control. You know, everything, I got everything together, I got everything in order, so that's why I'm content. I've got all my, my ducks in a row, all my bills are paid, you know, uh, I've got my, my career set, my future, my kids and, and everything. That's not contentment. Contentment is joy that exists in spite of circumstances and looks to an unchanging God because your circumstances and mine are going to change and they could change drastically at a moment's notice at the drop of a hat, couldn't they? You could get that phone call today. I have elderly parents. I could get that phone call today from my mom or from my dad that says, ah, I hate to tell you this. You know, We could, but it might not just be my elderly parents. It could be my children or my grandchildren. It could be my neighbors. It could be anybody in this room. The call could be from my doctor. I just had a physical last week, and the doctor could call me and say, I need you to come in my office. We've got to have a real serious talk. Contentment is security, knowing all my needs are met in and by God. All right, are there any more of those? That's it? Okay. You know, it's easy for us who are Americans blessed as we are in this land of plenty. To say, like Paul, 
I've learned in whatever circumstance I find myself to be content. It's easy for me to say that as I get into my, as I leave here and I get into my air-conditioned vehicle and, you know, and I drive and, and go eat lunch in an air-conditioned restaurant and somebody comes and brings me this perfectly prepared meal and I go home and I watch the rest of Andy Griffith on TV and my life is easy and it's good and I've got all these modern conveniences. It's easy for us as Americans to say that. And if you don't think that's who we are, you know, I would encourage you, some of you have been on mission trips to third world countries. And you've been to places where they have literally nothing compared to what we have. I've been to those places. And I've seen in those places the people of God with so much joy and so much love for him and love for others. And they have nothing that we have. And, and you've got to stop and think, why is that? But if you think you can say like Paul, I'm content, you know, I have to ask the question, who here among us has ever experienced whippings or shipwreck, hunger or thirst or homelessness or imprisonment? Not for dumb choices that we made, but for living for Christ. Can we truly say like Paul, I've learned what it means to be content when none of us has likely gone days without a meal or without a drink of cold, clean water? Before we claim this level of spiritual maturity like Paul apparently was was modeling for us there, maybe we will need to endure some of the same tests. I would say about myself, I can't say about you, but I can say about me, I really have no concept of the level of maturity that Paul was speaking of here when he made this statement. I have no understanding of this kind of contentment because I have never been tested like Paul. I'm so immature when it comes to the things that Paul had to learn. When I was a youth pastor many years ago, in the summertime, a lot of times we would, we'd have pool parties and things like that with kids. And, and we, one of the things I love to do is play games in the pool and divide them up into teams. And one of the games that we did that I think was absolutely great fun time in the pool was I'd go out and buy a watermelon and then I'd get a can of Crisco. And I'd take a paper towel and get a big goop of that Crisco out of that can, and, and I would smear it all over that watermelon. You don't have to do it thick, just nice coating all over so that there's not a spot on that watermelon that's not covered with Crisco. And then you line them up in the pool on opposite ends, and you take that watermelon, and you drop it into the pool and say, first team that gets it up out of the pool and on the side gets to eat it. You ever tried to pick up a greased watermelon in a swimming pool? Unless you have talons, you can't do it. You can't squeeze that thing. You can't grasp that thing because it's greasy and you, it just won't let you do it. And that's, you know, contentment for us, I think, in this country, in America, is slippery. Hard to grab a hold of. And the reason is that it's so slippery is because we have convinced ourselves that we'll be content if we have more material things. And what happens is this. Here's how it plays out. The more that we have, the less content we become, and we want even more. And when we seek contentment from material possessions, we only get pulled deeper and deeper into discontent. And it's all regulated by comparisons. A few years ago, I went on a missions trip to the Caribbean island of St. Lucia, in July. You know, if you're going to go visit the Caribbean, go in February. 
but in July when it was like it is outside every day. And I was invited on the Sunday that we were there, Rick, we want you to go to this little church and preach for them. And so two or three of us, four of us, I don't remember how many took this hike down this gravel road. I don't know, about a, about a mile's walk on the Sunday morning in that 100% humidity and 95 degree temperatures. And by the time we got to the little cement block church, I mean, it was, we were just drenched, just soaking wet. And it got there, and there's this little cement block church with no, they had windows, but there was no glass in the windows. They were just open. And certainly there was no air conditioning. There was no, there was not a fan in the building. And I'm soaking wet. And I, you go inside, and I knew it's going to be warmer inside than it was outside, and it was. And I thought, man, this is going to be so uncomfortable and miserable. How do these people do this? And I went inside and found this congregation of believers who, number one, they were excited to be there and gather and worship. They were, they were glad to be there. And, and they sang, and they sang with great enthusiasm and love for the Lord. And worship. They were glad to have me come and preach in my soaking wet shirt. And you know what? Not a single one of them said to me, you know, Pastor Rick, we are so sorry that we don't have air conditioning today. They didn't say, we're so sorry we don't have a fan. They never said, we're so sorry it's so stinking hot outside. Why? Because they're in the Caribbean in July, and that's life, and that's all they've ever known. There were no complaints. The only one that was complaining was, I didn't say it out loud, but in my heart, I'm thinking, God. I hope I don't die doing this, you know? Lord. Now, you can't be discontented with something that doesn't exist. But, you know, I, I think if maybe the church, if there had been a church right down the road and that church had a fine building with glass windows and air conditioning inside, even fans, you know what would have happened? The church where I was, once they found out about that, they would have started asking the question, gee, God, are they better than us? How come you've given that to them and not to us? And there would have been this feeling of discontent. Discontentment is all relative. That's what it is, it's all relative. By the way, this picture popped up on Facebook last week. Did you see this picture on Facebook last week? I love it. If for you, something, it's, it's slowly creeping in over here. There's, if for you the grass always seems greener in someone else's yard, if that's you, and you feel like you have to keep up, please hear me. Before you can fix your problem of discontentment, you've got to admit it. You've got to say, I've got this problem. Here's, what, here's how do I do that. First of all, you need to stop looking up the prosperity ladder at those who have more because that's what we're Tempted to do is to compare ourselves by looking at every, somebody that's got more. And listen, here's the fact of the matter. Somebody's always going to have more than you do. You know? Unless your name's Bill Gates or something, somebody's always going to have more than you. Always. And by looking up that ladder at those who have more, constantly comparing ourselves with them is a sign of spiritual immaturity, of selfishness, and of covetousness. What do I do instead? Well, grow up in the Lord and 
Look down the ladder at those who have less. Not down your nose. But look at those who don't have what you have. And by doing so, fix your eyes on godliness rather than comparing your status with others. I'll never forget in South Africa on a trip I went to there, outside of Johannesburg, we were taken to a place, there was this large, it was a, it was a dump, a landfill. But all spread out in this landfill where whatever people could find, cardboard boxes, pieces of corrugated tin, plastic, tarps, whatever. And I was told, Rick, there are thousands of people who live right there. We looked down the hill down at that. They didn't have any running water. They lived in a landfill. It made me appreciate at that point what God has given me. Let me close with a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. If you have your Bible, turn there very quickly with me. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Jesus is, has a crowd around him, as he often did. A crowd of people. He's got his disciples there, and then there's a lot of other people there, people who are following Jesus and wanting to be his disciples. And then, of course, the many critics, the Pharisees and the scribes and so forth, who were there that didn't like him. And someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher! Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, what does that mean? Their practice in those days is that when mom, mom or dad's, when dad died, everything dad owned went to the oldest son. Now, how many of you here in this room, you're the oldest son in the family? Would you raise your hand? We are blessed, aren't we? God bless us. We, uh, you got everything. Well, this guy here was not the oldest son. And he's saying, well, that's not fair that some people have more than others. Why don't you tell the law, change the law and make it so that my brother has to defi- divide the inheritance with me. Sounds a lot like American culture, doesn't it? Jesus said, friend, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? He then told them, and then he looks at the crowd. His disciples are there. He says, watch out and be on guard against all greed Because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. You're not made up of what you own. And then he told them a parable. A rich man, rich man's land was very productive. And he thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I'll do this. And I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. In other words, life's over tonight. Your clock has run out. And the things you have prepared, whose will those be? That's how it is, Jesus said, with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He said, be on guard. Why? Because he knows our human weaknesses and that one of them is to want more stuff. By the way, if you don't think you have plenty of stuff, go and look in your attic. Look in your garage. 
Look at where have you, your storage unit, where you have things that as you go through those every now and then, and you go up in that attic and say, you know what, I have a, I've been wondering where it happened to that. I haven't seen that thing in 15 years. Guess what? You didn't need it. Stuff. He said your life is made up of much more than what you possess materially. Greed, by the way, greed is the partner of discontent. They go hand in hand with one another. If your focus is on things, if our source of joy and contentment is on how much money or possessions or stuff I have, I'll never have enough. And if I never have enough, I'll work nonstop and be consumed with having more rather than learning contentment. That there must be a place where I have enough. There's got to be. And finding our source of contentment in the Lord. Someone wrote, I love this, contentment lies not in what is yours, but in whose you are. Say that again. Contentment lies not in what is yours, but in whose you are. How can I overcome contentment? What are some things I can do? Well, how about learn this? Learn to tell yourself the truth. When you get feelings of discontent because someone else has more than you, listen to God, because he's going to tell you the truth. And argue with yourself and tell you as you, you ever argue with yourself, by the way? That's not a sign of insanity, I don't think. It's how we figure things out. You argue with yourself and come to the conclusion that, you know, what God says is right. Now, sometimes I'll confess I'm wrong. God's never wrong. Tell yourself the truth about what God has said. God's right. Learn to tell yourself the truth. Then how about this? Instead of getting, try giving. Try giving. Again, as you're looking down that ladder at people who have less, what are, what are some things you could give away? God bless, a lady came up to me after the last gathering, said, my son and I have been having this argument. You know, she, he said, mom, you got to downsize. You're alone now and you don't need all this stuff. And I've been fighting about it. She said, today's message just kind of like rang my bell. And I'm going to get rid of a whole lot of stuff so I can give away. Try giving. Here's a good one. Make a list of the things you need. I'd encourage you to do that today. Make a list of the things you need and then start crossing things off as you realize you don't need them. Write that list out and then just hang on to it. Put it up somewhere. And every so often, every week or two weeks, go back to the list and say, you know what? I've gone a whole week without this thing. I've gone a whole month without this thing. I probably really don't need it. Make a list and cross off things you don't need. G.K. Chesterton was a famous Christian writer and apologist from the 19th century. He's often quoted. Somebody gave me a number of years ago a book full of his quotes. They're just really, really full of practical wisdom. One of the things he wrote was this. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. We have an advantage, Christian, over everyone else in the world. You and I do. 
And the advantage is for those without Christ, the only seeming way to find contentment is by accumulating more things and by being comfortable now, by having a portfolio and the American dream of a paid off mortgage and adequate insurance for our retirement years. And the only way to achieve that is to be driven now to get more. But for you and I who are believers, our advantage is this. We know that in Christ, all of our needs, that verse said, all of your needs, not some, but all of our needs are met in him. And he is the source of genuine contentment. It's not in things. Would you right now bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And let me ask you to have an honest evaluation of your own contentment with life. And if you have to say, hey, you know what the truth about me is? I've been caught up in the world's ideals of things and comfort. And I'm not doing the simple things we've been talking about the past few weeks. And I'm not depending on Christ in my life, but I'm living like it's all dependent on me, would you just right now confess that to God and ask him to change things in your life starting right now? Now, How many will admit, you know, it got a little bit uncomfortable in here this morning with no air, air conditioning and I did think, oh, I wish he would turn that back on. Anybody think that? Come on, tell the truth. Good. Point proven, right? Good. I hope you'll go home and remember that. So where do your standards come from in your life? Do they come from the ads on TV that tell you you can be younger, you can be richer, you can have all these things? Do your standards come from the ads on TV or do your standards come from the scriptures? Do you truly believe that God will supply all your needs and can you be satisfied with what the Lord, your creator, your savior places in your hand? Let me leave you with two simple rules to follow in learning contentment. Rule number one is this. My possessions never come before God. We talked about priorities a few weeks ago. God was at the top of the list. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things come into place. My possessions never come before God because once a possession, something I have, something I hold, something material, once it comes before God, it becomes my God, and it can never bring me contentment because it rusts and it molds, and it disintegrates, and it fades away. Then rule number two, possessions are to be used, not loved. What we love, we'll fight for. What we love, we'll even die to keep. And there is nothing that's material, not my house, my car, anything in my house, anything in my bank account, nothing, none of those things are worth dying for. None of those things are worth your life or your soul.
Heavenly Father, help us today, Lord, if we need, if this is the need of our lives, to learn contentment. I pray that you'll help that to start today, that you'll begin to teach us, that we'll make that list of things that we say we need, and then as we go on, we'll realize, I really don't need that. And as Christians understand that godliness with contentment is great gain and that we can live and live with joy and live with holiness and gladness and serve the purposes on this earth that you've placed us here to serve with much less than what we think we need. Help us to discover how much is enough. And then, Father, as you bless us with things, and you will, many of us, Help us to take the overflow of those things and to give them away and use them to point people to the Savior, to become good stewards of what you give us. There's much for us to learn, Father, especially in this country where we've been given so very much. We have so many blessings. Help us not to squander that. In Jesus' name I pray. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.